The green belt is one of our greatest inventions, like the city is one of our greatest inventions. And you know, once you've lost it, you cannot retrieve it. And, and it's only when you lose it that you realize its value. Hello and welcome to the Country Life Podcast with me, your host, James Fisher. Our guest this week is the world-renowned architect Norman Foster. My colleague, Carla Pacino, had the pleasure of interviewing him at the end of last year, and she joins us in the studio now. Hello, Carla. Hello, James. How are you doing today? All right, yes, very good. Sun's shining, so it's all great. Fantastic. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your meeting with Lord Foster, what you guys talked about, you know, takeaways from the interview, that kind of thing? Yes, so I interviewed him last October about his architecture in London. But what I found incredibly interesting about him is that, you know, he is a man who has literally won every single architectural award, you know, award on the planet, literally everything. Uh-huh. And is almost 90. And yet it's not someone that is resting on his laurels, not someone that is looking back at his legacy. It's very much someone who is thinking forward, thinking ahead, thinking about cities and how to shape them. And I found that energy and that vision utterly fascinating and surprising even. Yeah, it's quite surprising. I'd like to think when I'm 90, I'll be comfortably rested up somewhere and definitely not thinking about work. Fantastic. Well, that all sounds very interesting. Shall we, uh, shall we tuck in and have a listen? Absolutely. Why not? Fantastic. Here it is. You have worked across the world. You've worked in very, very many different contexts. What makes London different to you for your designs? Well, every place is special and it sounds like a, like a cliche. Um, so it's, I mean, what is the DNA of London? The DNA of London is that it's a series of individual villages which have grown and morphed into something that we call London. And I'm always saying when I describe London, just imagine looking at the buses and the destination on the front of the bus. And uh, they're all about green spaces. And when we look out there, just look at, out at the window, uh, the dominant element, if you look down there and you look at the foreground and you, you go down there, it's, it's green, it's, it's trees. And just think of Clapham Column, Common, Hampstead Heath, Shepherd's Bush, um, uh, Islington Green. Uh, we we take for granted, but every one of those titles, and I've I haven't scratched the surface, is about um, a green space. So London is essentially organic. Um, it's not gridded on a right angle like New York. It's not on grand axes like Paris. Um, it has this meandering river, which is as meandering as the organic communities that I'm talking about. So it has this informality um, and 
so as an architecture, how do you respond to that? Well, placing the Millennium Bridge was in many ways deferring to St. Paul's Cathedral. If you look at this as a suspension bridge right here, it has an amazing presence. I mean, it is, it's, you look at it, it's, it's a statement about the river. It's a statement about the bridge. If you look at the Millennium Bridge, it's a suspension bridge, but it's the lowest suspension bridge that has ever been made. The suspension elements are no higher than the balustrade. So that bridge architecturally is an exercise in, I called it initially a blade of light on the basis that light is ephemeral. Trafalgar Square, you would never know that it was once a very, very dangerous roundabout. Um, the British Museum is not a heroic statement from the outside. Again, it's deferring to the roof lines, um, it's transforming what was once a courtyard, so it's rediscovering the past. So I, th I think that there is a delightful sense of understatement, which in a way, if I wanted to think on that is a characteristic that arguably is a kind of national characteristic. Um, and so the examples that I've, that I've given, um, and the way I'm making this up as I go along, because, <laughs> because I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely trying to, uh, to think what, what I mean, Architecture is this combination of elements which are globalized in terms of their production and their availability. But having said that, how do you take those elements and combine them with the DNA of a, of a city so that they are of the place. If I continue this theme, I would say that Bloomberg, in a historic setting of the old, the old city, the city within a city, the city of London, um, again, is not a typical contemporary glass box. It has a solidity. It's using the stone of the adjoining magistrate's courts, which goes back some centuries. Um, it's low. We had consent, if we'd wished to exercise it, to do quite a tall building there. Instead, I elected to pick up the history of the site 
by recreating the extension of the old Roman road, Watling Street, as an arcade. So that building is low in terms of its scale. It's solid and not glassy. It's using noble materials, which will age with patina with time. Again, I would say that it fits into that aspect of a degree of understatement. It's not a kind of here I am, and it's creating public spaces in addition to the arcade. Those public spaces, small squares, are brought alive by Christine Iglesias. Again, very, very subtle. It's fairly common knowledge that those sculptures also work in terms of being protective barriers. Um, but again, they don't, you're not really aware of that. It's quite subtle. The skyline has changed quite a bit over the past, let's say, 20 years, maybe maybe 30. How does that fit in with these? Because obviously a lot of the very tall buildings do make a statement. Does it fit with this organic city, with this sort of uh, sense of place? I think it's mixed. I think that <clears throat> the, the city of London has always traditionally been denser. And so that's perhaps reflected in the, the cluster of tall buildings in the same way that Canary Wharf was a, a conscious attempt to recreate another center. I think that you can validly criticize the fact that it's monocultural. I think if if, if, if that same um, experiment was being conducted today, then rather than retrofitting residential into it, um, it would be optimistically conceived as much more a neighborhood with all the facilities and, and not a monocultural commercial center. Um, I think some of the clusters of tall buildings um, have not come out of conscious planning. Um, and therefore, I think they have an element of being more arbitrary and, um, and less planned as communities. Um, but the, the overall big picture essence of London and its strength architecturally and socially is that, is that it's essentially medium rise, high density, with a strong pattern of public spaces, many of which are, are green spaces. That is, for me, the DNA and the strength of, of London. So I think London is, a, is, in that sense, a very special place. And interestingly, <clears throat> the DNA of, of London, if you try to um, identify, you look across, I mean, you can see just out of looking across the Thames, you can see these brick terraces um, uh, and if you penetrate further, then 
you're finding squares, you're finding row houses, Georgian terraces, brick. Um, of course, that came out of the crises of the Great Fire of London. Um, the DNA of London before that was much more wooden structures, thatch, um, so fireproof construction, the party wall, um, brick terraces, uh, the elegant terraces that we associate with London. I mean, emerged out of a crisis in the same way that the Thames Embankment, um, which is a very noble and enduring um, and elegant riverside wall, came out of the, the great cholera epidemic, which simultaneously created below-ground public transport and modern sanitation cleaned up the Thames. What's your view then, with all you've told me about cities, about this idea of the 15-minute city that's so much criticised now, from a, from a livability perspective? I think, it's, I think it's got strangely highly politicised because I think it's, it's got mixed up with other issues of, uh, of charging um, uh, and exclusion, where really the, 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 the 15 minute city as a new kind of Paris-born label is shorthand for the neighborhood. And there is nothing more humane, attractive, desirable, sustainable than a neighborhood. I mean, you cross, I mean, you, you walk around here, you cross the river, you go to Chelsea. Um, everything is within walking distance. You don't need a car. You may have a car and you may park your car, but, but I mean, I was reading the official magazine of the Royal Automobile Club and it notes that, um, that drivers of cars for short journeys prefer walking or taking a bicycle. <clears throat> and this is a magazine representing the interests of the motorist. Um, and so this kind of Parisian-labeled 15-minute city is the very essence of London. More than 90% of Londoners live within a 15-minute walk of a high street. A high street combines most of the elements that we're talking about about proximity, being able to walk to a shop, being able to walk to your local school, ideally it being able to walk to your place of work, or if you can't walk to your place of work, then walking to a good system of public transport that will, you know, will take you across the metropolis in enlightening speed. And incidentally, um, we have to challenge traditional zoning because the zoning um, in the past quite rightly banished noxious industry away from residential. 
But so much of industry today is light and clean and compatible with residential. So you could encourage the walk to work. And arguably that's, oh, that's one's, one's greatest luxury, proximity. We have to encourage the compact city. London is a compact city. I mean, cities that, that sprawl and devour the countryside and biodiversity, they're not only unsustainable. If you look at the energy consumed, they're totally unsustainable. If you look at the social isolation, people live longer when they're active when they're walking rather than driving. Um, and if you really want validation for the compact city, then look at all the surveys by Mercer, by Forbes magazine, by The Economist, Continuous Traveller, Monocle. The list is endless. Look at those cities where people vote to, by visiting them as tourists or by electing to to live there, to bring up a family. They're all compact cities. The list is, you know, it's Zurich, it's London, it's Geneva, it's Copenhagen, it's Vienna. Um, uh, even in America, they are the American version of the compact city. They're Boston, they're New York. Um, no one wants to live in Houston. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. And, and the... You know, one of the greatest British inventions, almost uniquely British, that was reinforced during the, the master plan at the height of World War II, the so-called Abercrombie plan, um, was about reinforcing the Green Belt. And the Green Belt is constantly under attack. Um, uh, it's easy picking for developers when you have brownfield sites in cities. The, the green belt is one of our greatest inventions, like the city is one of our greatest inventions. And uh, you know, once you've lost it, you cannot retrieve it. And, and it's only when you lose it that you realize its value. If there's an unwritten book that I would like to write, it's The Virtues of the Green Belt. It's contained, London is contained the sprawl. I think it's a topic that will certainly resonate well with get to the freedoms. I promise you, I'm not playing to the gallery. I mean, I, 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 I it, you know, it's a point that I, that I made in my in my talks to students um, uh, wherever I am. What's your relationship with critics? Because obviously, there's been some. How do you take it? Do you ignore them? Do you, you know, people that disagree with you, they have a different vision of architecture. Do you think they're wrong? Do you try to persuade them? Do you, what's your, what's your relationship with criticism in general? Um, I think we're all human. And um, I, I think that there is, um, I think we're all to a degree um, resistant to, to change. Um, hopefully in many instances, and probably most instances, then um, changes for the better. And when it's had the benefit of mellowing over time, then it's it's acknowledged as as such. I mean, um, 
when I last visited Nîmes and I was going into the Caridana, I was approached by somebody who said, when you did this building, I was one of your most vociferous critics, and I'm now happy to admit that I was wrong. I think that um, Neem is better for that building than what was there before, which was the ruin of a burnt-out opera house. But then change isn't necessarily always for the good. I mean, I can think of some developments which I think, well, what they've replaced is not necessarily better. So, but I think everybody's human. I think that, and I think that when, when critics are intelligent, um, then I think that you know, we, 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 we all in the end derive benefit from well-informed criticism. Um, I think that the intelligent and if there is such a thing, unbiased critic. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I think it's a, an essential element of a democratic society. It's a critically important element. Um, and I think that although it may make us feel uncomfortable, then somehow we have to try and rise above it and when it's intelligent to to heed it but not all criticism is necessarily well-intentioned um, and all criticism is not necessarily well-informed so in the end I think it brings us back to um, uh, a sense of balance and, and judgment but there's but there's no question that I mean would we like to live in a society where criticism is encouraged and tolerated or one where it's suppressed. There's, for me, there's no question, and I suspect for you there's no question. <laughs> but, 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 but um, uh, is it disturbing from time to time? Of course it is. We can pretend otherwise. Now, making you be your own critic, what would you say has been your greatest contribution to London? And what would you say you would do slightly differently if you could? I find it difficult to look back. I find it easier to look forward and to, to devote what energy I have to future acts rather than, in a way, indulging in the past. Um, although I think that, having said that, I'm often quite rightly quoted as saying that if you want to look far ahead to the future, then first look far back to the past. And and I think that I could um, I could instance our work at the Royal Academy or the British Museum as being rooted in, or even Trafalgar Square, um, being rooted in um, a research into the past to discover. For example, that uh, the British Museum originally was conceived with a courtyard that was filled in within the first decade after the architect's death by the architect's brother, who uh, who immediately filled that courtyard. So discovering that precedent was a clue to 
um, to action in terms of the future of the British Museum. What, what do you see as the biggest changes in the near future? What, how is architecture going to respond? If, if, if we come down to the city, the city has two components. It's the individual buildings, and then it's the infrastructure that binds those individual buildings together. Call that the urban glue. Today, with the use of data, and every city has its own internal data, plus now more and more open source data, we can create a digital twin of the city. We can simulate that on screens. Each of those cities, we are able to create specific programs, computer programs for each of those cities to enable, to be able to explore the implications of changes to improve the quality of life. So what I'm saying is that we have the tools now that can enable a bottom-up community-based approach where a community could see the implication of a change for the better, uh, but they can see the implications of that be before making... So, so this is taking, taking decision-making away from an arbitrary, opinion-based into something which is much more objective. I don't know whether I'm making that yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's it's fascinating. I hadn't thought of this at all. And it's you had this passion for for plays. What made you choose? What made you choose architecture instead? You know, t tell me both. Tell me both how for everything started. Um, I mean, I I left school at sixteen, which was absolutely normal in the area that I grew up in. Um, and so, so my first experience of architecture, apart from my local library, beyond home, was Manchester Town Hall, which was a, a magnificent Victorian neo-Gothic creation by Alfred Waterhouse and was the outcome of a, of a competition. And, um, and I remember, um, although as a humble office boy, I was still... Uh, although I wasn't aware in a way that I am now that this was a, a work of, of architecture. Um, but, um, but I was moved by those spaces. And, and again, I would, um, I would use my lunch hours to walk around Manchester and, and explore buildings. So I was, I was fascinated by, by buildings and later in the public library, I was to discover the work of Le Corbusier, Frank Lloyd Wright, through, uh, through books on the library shelves, like Towards a New Architecture, written by Corbusier, or Russell Hitchcock on In the Nature of Materials, which was about the work of Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, and then I did 
two years of national service, um, not flying in the RAF, but um, but as a radar technician, uh, and then uh, I suppose I discovered the profession of, of architecture um, quite late in my early 20s um, and um, and applied to um, to a university Manchester University um, although I didn't have the qualifications because I left school at 16 for a university degree um, I think very creatively um, uh, and I only realized it much much later I realized that um, that that they created a diploma so was was quite creative because what they did was they said we can't give you a degree but we can allow you to do the degree course and at the end of it we'll create a diploma uh, but that had its complications because because I didn't qualify for a degree course then I didn't qualify for a grant so in some ways I kind of worked my way by working and studying at the same time um, so I was doing a, a full-time course and working part-time to help subsidize that um, but again I was the the first in my family to go to a university. It must have been, must have been very hard to work, study for a full time. It was quite challenging, yes. <laughs> What's the oddest job? The oddest job? The oddest. You must have done all sorts too, you know. This. I think it was working in a cold store for Wall's Ice Cream. Um, and this was in the summer vacation to university so uh, it was humping um, metal boxes which were filled with bars of ice cream which were quite heavy and kind of uh, those would come out of a conveyor belt from the truck that was delivering them and um, so that was uh, I want to know what made you then decide to take this pilot art sense. Um, I was, I was, um, I was with my family on a day out um, on Dunstable Downs, and I saw these incredibly beautiful sailplanes silently cruising overhead, uh, and and I was tempted to go down to the club and inquire and got um, a trial flight and I was absolutely hooked um, and I'd forgotten but as a, um, as a teenager I remember specifically researching a gliding club um, and discovering that the nearest one to Manchester was outside Manchester and there was no way I could could get there but I do remember um, researching that and so I think that 
that the idea of flight and flying, probably if you'd asked me as a, as a, as a kid, and there's always the kind of romantic idea, perhaps the train driver of an express uh, train, um, but it wasn't the train driver of an express train. I think that uh, it, if you'd have asked me at that impressionable time of youth, it would have been perhaps a test pilot or some romantic vision. Anyway, the um, uh, so flying sailplanes, racing sailplanes, um, eventually led to a fascination with helicopters in parallel. And so I got a helicopter license. I got a, a license for a, uh, Then I became interested in flying for business um, and got an instrument rating and, uh, and flew a piston twin. So I flew that to Nîmes, for example, the project that I mentioned to the south of France. I would remember flying to Manchester to give a lecture um, and then um, graduated to jets. In between, I became interested in aerobatics and flew aerobatics and a Cap 10. Uh, I flew biplanes, historic biplanes for a time. So, so I've, in my logbook, I probably have around 75 different kinds of aircraft. Um, uh, and so I've, you know, I, I, and I, I just find flight inspirational, the perspective, um, the way in which it reveals nature and urbanity, some of the very questionable planning moves from above they're magnified um, the beautiful villages that you know from the ground when you see them in the context as compact urbanities you can see the geometry of the streets so there's um and there's a, a romance i suppose which i still get an incredible emotional charge from i mean i think the, the objects are very beautiful and this gravity defying um, transcendence from uh, into flight is, is is still for me very very romantic. I, I can I can clearly see it. I'll ask you one last question before Mario kills me. Before you reject it. <laughs> um, obviously, you mentioned that flight is inspirational. Where else do you get your inspiration? You know, I think that we 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 are all, without exception. Everything that we do, we're influenced by those who've gone before us, those who've taught us or brought us up. Um, uh, so I think we have all kinds of of debts, um, and to those in our field of activity. I mean, if I talk to um, on one project that I'm working on. So Larry Ellison uh, Institute and the doctor who is um, very close to Larry Ellison and perhaps the, the 
in day-to-day terms, Dr. Agus, I mean, he as a doctor is, is always in the conversations that we have together. He talks about his historic debts to the pioneers of medicine. And for him, those are inspirational today in the same way that I can talk about architects whose work has influenced me. That doesn't mean to say that we, we copy those quite the re- reverse. Um, uh, we use those influences perhaps in a very personal way, but some are subconscious, they're buried, and it's perhaps only in certain circumstances that we look at something and say, gosh, I never thought of, of that connection with, with that in, in the past. So I think some are buried, some are more conscious, but we're all products of, of those from the past. Thank you very, very much. I cannot express my gratitude enough. Thank you so much.